0: Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. Yesterday, all eyes were on Queen's Park. Uh, yesterday, the Ontario government, uh, well, is reintroducing that bill that uh, it was essentially supposed to slash the size of Toronto City Council. Uh, it was a rather chaotic scene inside Queen's Park, uh, well, through most of the course of the day. A couple of people arrested. Uh, some of the NDP members were actually kicked out of the legislature for banging on their desks. Uh, Travis Danraj was there. Travis is the uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about uh, what he saw yesterday. Travis, great to have you here. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Happy to be here. Yeah, what a day yesterday. Well, the circus came to town. It looked like it anyway. I mean, did you anticipate this was going to happen?
1: Well, you never really know what you're going to get under the Doug Ford administration. I mean, it's proved uh, to be an interesting summer. And uh, now that we're into the fall and the, the kids are back in school, uh, we, you know, we didn't think that we would be back this early. Uh, the original date for the fall session was the 24th. But now, of course, uh, we're back, and you saw what the first day looked like. Uh, it, it was quite the scene. I was in the, in the, the gallery, in the media gallery, um, kind of observing the proceedings, and we, we were in for uh, you know, a, a very ruckus back and forth on the floor, but we did not expect that in the public gallery. Uh, there have been protests arranged before in the public gallery, but for the most part, they've been uh, silent. You're not really supposed to make any noise when you're up there. It started with a bit of coughing, and then that spiraled out of control into shouts of shame. Uh, you know, this is, what not, this is not what democracy looks like, um, and stand up to your bully.
0: You must have known, though, as you were heading into work that day yesterday, Travis, uh, the long lineups outside of uh, the Queen's Park to people to get into the gallery, that something was going to go on.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I got there at about 9.30 or so. Question period starts at 10.30, and there were there was a huge line uh, on the front lawn of, of the, the legislature. We actually got uh, the, the premier coming in on the other side uh, of the leg- legislature, and he said, this is going to be a great day for democracy. So we knew something was up early on. Uh, but we did not think that there would be uh, arrests. Uh, there's actually two uh, alleged nuns that we can't confirm that they're nuns, but they were they were dressed in uh, you know uh, habit and everything like mm-hmm. that. They were they were kicked out as well. It was a grandmother screaming as she was being uh, handcuffed and let out. That I'm a you know I'm a 77 year old grandmother. I never thought it would be having to stand up for democracy in this province, and that's what I'm having to do now. So it, it was something, and that was that was the morning, and then the afternoon came, and then we saw the protests with the NDP.
0: Uh, well, it's interesting. There's almost a double standard here, as one of the observers was telling me yesterday. Uh, it, they you know they they have a lot of tolerance for MPPs that make noise and catcalls through the course of question period, but the, the public's not supposed to do that. And, and as you mentioned, the rules are pretty stringent, and they tell everybody that before they go to the gallery, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do, and you have to bring uh, government issued ID. Uh, you have to check your cell phone in. You go through metal detectors. I mean, that's it's all safety protocol. But I mean, you're supposed to abide by certain decorum in the public gallery. You're not supposed to make noise. It's it's a it's a bit unlike City Hall. City Hall, um, they're a little bit more lenient when it comes to that uh, because you know I'm sure you have watched council meetings before here in Toronto. They oh, get yeah. very raucous.
0: Well, yeah, except I can remember one a couple of months ago where our friend Mark Carcassile actually was admonished by somebody at one of the them be, Hey, could you keep it down? We're trying to do business here. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so the, you never know what you're going to get, I guess, when you do something like that. But So so that was the morning session, and, and obviously this was not spontaneous, of course. I mean, the, I think you mentioned on your report last night with Donna Friesen on uh, Global National that this went out through social media. So the, this was a concerted effort to try to get some folks in there yesterday.
1: Yeah, it was. So it went out on Facebook. There have been similar uh, you know Facebook posts before to pack the gallery,, uh, but it's never really uh, turned into what we saw yesterday. So you know it was it was you know we saw this uh, post go out, um, I guess it was the night before yesterday, and we thought, okay, well, there's there's gonna be something at least on the front lawn, what will happen in the gallery and then we saw that. but yeah, the afternoon happened, and then of course, uh, you know we saw. We knew that something was going to happen. I talked to sources kind of during the break, which was around noon or so, while everyone was having lunch. And we got wind that the NDP were going to do something. We didn't know what. Um, And then we saw, you know, what happened with them slamming their fists on their desks and literally uh, taking their desks, uh, the tops of the desks open uh, for the MPPs. And they were slamming those down uh, like School
0: children, some people say. Yeah, that's pretty good characterization. I mean, I anticipated that there was going to be a rather raucous session in the afternoon, too, once they started to introduce the bill uh, for first reading again. Uh, but I was kind of hoping they might debate it instead of carrying on the way that they did. Uh, I I guess they're going to try to justify it and say, well, we tried to, but there wasn't a whole lot uh, going on. And and heaven knows, uh, as you guys have been reporting over the last couple of days since this whole thing uh, hit the fan, Travis, uh, there's there's more than enough uh, constitutional or procedural things that the opposition could have brought up to try to get some honest debate in here. But they seem to to choose for the optics here instead, you know, the gong show stuff with the yelling and screaming and the desk slamming.
1: Well, and we talked to John Frazier about that, who's the interim leader of the Liberals. He yeah. said, listen, this was first reading, and it, it goes to second reading today, so there might be debate today. But but he said, we wanted, as a Liberal caucus, to be in there to actually vote against this, even though it's first reading. Um, and I, I put that question to, to Andrew Horvath. I said, you know, does, does, aren't the optics of this... Don't they look like, you know, you're just picking up your ball and saying, okay, we lost, we leaving the game? She said, absolutely not. We wanted to make a bold statement, and we wanted to, you know, uh, show the people of Ontario that we, as the opposition, are not going to stand for this, and we're going to do whatever we can to uh, delay this. But ultimately, they only delayed the introduction of the bill by about 20 minutes or so.
0: Did you get a chance to talk to any of the government members yesterday?
1: Yeah, I did. I talked to Todd Smith, who's the House leader. Yeah, uh, And, you know, Carolyn Mulrooney came out, and she also did what's called a scrum, where all the reporters kind of uh, ask her questions. And she, she stayed there for quite some time, and she was getting uh, hammered on, you know, uh, why she is supporting this, if it is the correct use of the notwithstanding clause, and then, of course, what her father, the former Prime Minister Brian Mulrooney. Uh, had to say about the notwithstanding clause, famously saying at one point years ago that it was not worth the paper it's written on. Uh, and she stood firm. She said, "You know, my father has his opinions, but I think that this is a uh, this is a, an effective use of the notwithstanding clause." Todd Smith said as well, "We're well within our right to use it, and it is going to be very interesting to see uh, whether or not this is a tool." which some folks uh, you know sources within the pc party have told me this if this is going to be a tool that uh, the premier intends to use not on just on this issue but others as well
0: well he hit it at that the other day didn't he
1: he did he did and then I think he realized that and then uh, you know uh, really kind of stopped stopped going down that path but uh, but I mean there are there are a number of of challenges right now, you know. you look at sex ed. Uh, EPFO, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, has launched a, a lawsuit saying that uh, you know that teachers uh, were not consulted and that infringes on their rights when it comes to this rolling back of the sex ed curriculum. Could the notwithstanding clause be invoked again on that? Well, it's a potential. It could happen, uh, and, and once the door is open to this, uh, it becomes a lot easier. To, to fight that battle
0: because a precedent has been set yeah and you're right I mean and you guys listed those the other day of course on global news I mean there's obviously there's that there's uh, and and from the sex ed, of course come the the human rights tribunals and and those things are forthcoming but they did seem to walk back a little bit on the uh, the uh, green energy act didn't they yesterday because uh, after Greenpeace threatened to sue them uh, the, the word we got out of Queen's Park is that okay we'll have public consultation.
1: Yeah, and so you know you might see a little bit uh, of push and pull, and I was talking about this earlier on our station here in Toronto. Um, you know, th- there will be some give and take, but uh, I know from covering uh, the Fords for quite some time. Um, you know, when when uh, the late Mayor Rob Ford was in office, I covered I covered him, and uh, Premier Ford is a counselor as well. Um, they like the Premier has a list of things that he wants to get done, and he is dead set on getting those done one way or another. So, I mean, there might be a bit of give and take, but if he can get something done, whatever tool he has at his disposal, he is going to use.
0: i got to ask you something, and this is a point of clarification, because there's has a lot of speculation over the last couple of days uh, since the judicial ruling came down, and, of course, then uh, Mr. Ford decided uh, you know, that, that day that he was going to invoke uh, the, the notwithstanding clause and reintroduce the bill. I- isn't that overkill? I mean, if they... Invoke the Notwithstanding Clause. I've also heard that they want to appeal the ruling from the judge. Do they really need to do that? So what they want
1: to do, um, from what I understand, is they want to appeal it, which could take some time, to, say, uh, to, to show that they believe the ruling by uh, Justice Bellobaba was incorrect. Mm-hmm. But because they don't have the luxury of time, um, and that might not go their way, to be honest, They're invoking this um, because it's kind of bulletproof, the the Notwithstanding Clause, Section 33 of the Charter.
0: Yeah, so It's a
1: two-pronged approach. They want to say, okay, judge, you are wrong, but also we're stopping this one way or another.
0: Because notwithstanding what, uh, I hate to use that phrase again, it's it's becoming pretty popular these days, Uh, what the the NDP did yesterday, or the people in the gallery for that matter, do you get the sense, though, Travis, there's a sense of inevitability? I mean, this is going to happen. This is a majority government.
1: Well, and, and this, is, this is exactly the question I put to the leader of the opposition yesterday as well. I said, you know, uh, these are tactics, yes, to delay, but ultimately uh, Mr. Ford has set out his priorities. He has a majority, um, and he will be able to do this. And, the, and the, the prime minister has said that he is not going to get involved when it comes to the size of Toronto City Council. So it's pretty clear the only folks that could step in, the feds, uh, and try to do something to stop this, and, and that is even questionable, uh, are saying that they're not going to. Uh, people are saying they don't agree with this, but at the end of the day, it, it is likely going to happen.
0: With or without, uh, well, the notwithstanding clause it pretty much guarantees that's the that's the, the body armor they need to get this thing uh, uh, in the books, don't they?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, the what happened yesterday, um, you know, according to the NDP, is them saying that this is, this is not, uh, you know, the, the right use of, of the, uh, the clause. And if we go down this road now, it, it opens a very, very scary door. It's the first time it's ever been used in Ontario. It's only been used a handful of times uh, across uh, the country. It's interesting, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, who uh, was part of the formation of the Charter, really did not want this in. Now uh, it's, it's on his son, the current prime minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, whether or not he's going to get involved, and he's saying no.
0: Meanwhile, <laughs> as they say in all these melodramas, uh, down the street a little bit, Toronto City Council is meeting today to discuss what options they might have. Well, i got I to figure, Travis, that's a pretty short list.
1: It's You know, it's funny that, that everything's been happening at Queen's Park <laughs> for the past, uh, I guess, 24 hours or so, and everyone's forgotten about Yeah, City Hall, and what actually, you know, we're talking about here, the election and the people of Toronto on on October 22nd. So today uh, they're having an emergency meeting uh, of council. The mayor, John Tory, has called out to discuss what they're going to do now, what their options are. Uh, I'm I'm guessing um, that, you know, their options are few and far between uh, in terms of what they can do, but this has also created a lot of confusion in the clerk's office for the past couple of days now as to you know, when the deadline is, uh, Who, uh, if they're running a 25 race, if they're running a 47 race. Now there's a little bit of clarity um, that this looks like it's going through that. It will be a 25, and there's a a deadline set now.
0: Is there a possibility of, of changing the election date? Somebody raised that yesterday uh, simply because of the timing that's going on. I mean, we are, what, four and a half weeks away from from the election day, and some people are wondering whether or not that's enough time to actually run an effective campaign for anybody that may want to be seeking office.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that, that's been a question for not only the past couple of days, but the past couple of weeks. Yeah. Since, you know, uh, the, the premier announced that he wanted to cut the size of council because, you know, they have to recreate the map. They, I mean, the, the ballots need to go out. I mean, there's logistical things that the clerk, clerk's office needs to do. Um, I have been told... Uh, by sources, and there's no uh, confirmation from the province on this officially on the record, but I have been told if the city throws up their hands and says we can't run this election, the province will say, okay, Elections Ontario is going to step in and handle this for you. So it, it seems to me as though the, the province is dead set on having the city of Toronto election on uh, on October 22nd.
0: So that's not going to change. I mean, that's a province-wide date. We understand that. But I just wondered if there was any flexibility. But uh, from what well, you're telling well, us, the province doesn't seem to have much of a mind to, to alter it anyway. They still, they still feel, free that, feel that they can go through with this.
1: And it's my understanding that even if you know, Toronto City Council does decide, okay, we can't run this, they have to go to the province to request uh, a different date. So, I mean, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place.
0: Yeah, and because uh, everyone else in the province would be voting on October twenty second, and they would may want—I don't know—the end of the month. I don't know what they—they'd even do, but it doesn't sound like it's much of an option. Uh, what's the time frame? This was first reading. They're, they're going back today for second reading. Are they not?
1: That—that uh, that is the case. So, uh, and that could be second reading could take a couple of days because. Uh, You know, it will need to be debated, Um, and and the legislature does not sit on Fridays. Of course, everyone goes back to their respective ridings. So um, we've only really got today, and then this is likely going to go into next week. Then it goes to a final reading, uh, which is third reading, and then it gets royal assent. So we're, we're looking probably... Uh, at kind of mid-next week or even into the into the following week to, uh, for this to become law.
0: And with that time frame, you got to figure they're going to limit debate on this, which is only going to irk the opposition even more.
1: Exactly. And I actually just got off the phone before I got on with you with a, a source uh, with the NDP, and I said, okay, well, what are we going to see today? They said, well, today is going to be a little bit more business as usual because they actually do want to debate this. So I don't think at least from the floor of the house, you're going to see anything like what you saw yesterday. In terms of the public gallery, well, we'll find out at 10.30.
0: Yeah, we will. And we'll be watching uh, Global News at 5.30 and 6 to see just what happened. Travis, thanks so much. Really appreciate the time today. Anytime. Take care. Travis Downrange, Queens Park Bureau Chief, of course, with Global News.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Uh, we got a problem here in this city with uh, affordable housing. Now, this is not new, of course. Uh, this has been going on for quite some time. But uh, to their credit, the city council has taken some major steps to try to mitigate the impact of, uh, well, the wait lists and everything else. But uh, some stats they got the other day are not encouraging. The waitlist for those wanting into Hamilton Social Housing continues to grow as the city uh, fails to maintain some of the units that is sold. Chad Collins uh, is the chairman of that committee. He's also the counselor for Ward 5. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to bring us up to speed on this. Chad, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me on, Bill. It's got to be very frustrating for you.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, you and I have covered this topic extensively over the last number of years, and and um you know as we we're seeing great prosperity in the city there's just no doubt about that and it's you know there's a there's the flip side to that coin is that it's creating tremendous pressures on certain people in our society who are finding it uh, very difficult to find an affordable apartment unit or rental unit in our city and so while we're seeing escalating um, real estate prices we're seeing a ton of development in all parts of the city and that's uh, you know helping us with new tax assessment and record building permits the flip side to that uh, coin and, and the other side of that story is that it's creating tremendous affordability pressures for people in the city and um and that wait list as you mentioned is is going up and all the while that we've seen these you know this great prosperity in the city um uh, hamilton along with other municipalities across the country are waiting for the higher levels of government to chip in and, and you covered again just a couple of weeks ago the cut to the um you know the carbon tax yep. uh, plan that was cut at the provincial level and, and one of the dominoes to fall as a result of that decision was less uh, funding for affordable housing in terms of energy retrofits. And uh, Hamilton was a, a, a big beneficiary of that. Uh, just in 2017, we received, I think it was 6 or $7 million from the former government. And we anticipated that same level of funding over years 2018, 2019 and beyond. And so that's, that's no longer there. And, of course, the federal liber- Liberals have uh, talked about and endorsed a national housing strategy, which is great from a policy perspective, but we've yet to see any dollars flow through um, from their Treasury and their, and their government to municipalities. And, and I anticipate that leading up to their election, as is traditionally the case with the province and the feds, that we'll start to see some funding announcements, not just for Hamilton, but for others. But it's, it's really... Um, you know, it, it, it should have happened two, three, four, five years ago, and, and unfortunately it didn't.
0: Well, that was one of the things that really bothered me about that cancellation program by the government, because they misrepresented exactly what it was, uh, suggesting the cap-and-trade was a tax grab by the government. That money flowed back into the communities, and, uh, or was great. supposed to anyway, uh, and was earmarked by cities like your, uh, Hamilton, Toronto, and so many others right now for these very things. So it, it really has left you guys high and dry
2: it has and and uh, thankfully and, and again you've covered this extensively bill you know council made a decision earlier in the term to utilize the um, you know the resources that we've been given by hydro to uh, flow right into affordable housing and so for the next 10 years as those revenues flow to the city we will put half of those funds into renovation and repair and so you, you, we you know we've seen news articles and, and media accounts of elevators that don't work and People who are living in substandard uh, situations, whether it's city housing or or in another affordable um, r- rental unit managed by another provider, um, and so th- those renovations and repairs will happen over a period of ten years, and that's twenty million dollars, and that's on top of the existing budget that the city has for those. Um, those types of um, budgetary requirements.
0: And and that's, listen, that's laudable, and, and City Council should be congratulated for that. Yep. But you also got a, a, a number yesterday, Chad, the, the yep. City staff estimated how much it would cost over the next 20 years to repair some of these things. It's $400 million. Yep. So it, as, as, yeah. as great as what the City did, yep. it's a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed.
2: Absolutely, and the message has always been every time we make these investments that we just can't do it alone. It's unaffordable to think that local rate payers whether they live in flamborough winona or somewhere in between it's un uh, it's just unrealistic to think that we're going to be able to solve that uh that backlog of repairs and that's not that's not that doesn't include build the wait list issue so we're we also need new units and half of the investment of that 50 million that i just referenced will go towards uh, constructing new units to get people off of the wait list so there's it, the theme here is that it needs to be a partnership and right now we have one of three partners at the table we have one of three partners who are making investments we have one of three partners who are you know you've covered other projects that we're working on we're trying to capitalize on um, the real estate uh, holdings that we have Jamesville's is a great example 191 york uh, we have properties that um, you know just as other properties across the city have have, um, have increased in terms of their value we sit on some very valuable properties and we're 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 liquidating some of the equity in those properties and reinvesting it back into new units. And so find, trying to find creative ways to, um, to provide more units or to undertake repairs in a more timely manner, but we cannot continue to do it on our own. And at some point in time, we lo- we will have exhausted those opportunities. Um, you know, we're we've sold vacant parking lots that uh, are underperforming at the city. So again, and this has all been with a council that is um, to a person around the table has, has supported these initiatives and uh, it's certainly led by our mayor, and, but it's, it's not enough. And I can't uh, fault anyone in the community who says more needs to be done. I'm just not certain where the city will turn next from a resource perspective to increase or, or supplement what we've already provided.
0: We, we should be clear on this, too, because when we use a phrase like, well, repairs to some of these units, mm-hmm. uh, I don't want people to have the idea that that means what well, needs a coat of paint or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. you have to fix part of the eaves trough. You've yep. got units right now that are uninhabitable because of the work that needs to be done.
2: That's right, and I think Tevya and his story that's in The Spectator today covered that fairly well. You know, we started the term, I think we were around 125 or 130 units, and that's this is just within the city housing inventory. We had uh, 130 units, I believe, that were... were We had boards on the windows and boards on the doors because um, they were just to the point where we couldn't have anyone live in them. They were uninhabitable, uninhabitable, as you just mentioned, Bill. And Toronto's in a worse situation. They have hundreds and hundreds of units that are in that situation where they have uh you know they're they're essentially you walk through a survey and you see unit after unit that's boarded up because they're so far gone from a capital uh repair perspective they just you you can't you know you could not imagine someone living in them and and other units are are soon to follow and so as we look at the inventory and the age of the units that we have in some of our oldest apartment buildings and some of our oldest townhome units uh or complexes um, you know, we start to see some of those. Those uh, the average age of age of those units are forty, fifty, in some cases sixty years old, and that's why our board took the position that we would look at some of our oldest uh, units, our singles and semis in particular. Some of those that needed a fifty thousand dollar foundation repair or needed, a, uh, you know, the uh, the kitchen needed to be gutted or needed new windows and a roof. You start looking at some of those repair bills, and they're in the sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar range, and it's it's just not you know, our, our dollars will go further serving our our, re- our residents in um, higher density uh, developments. And so, the, you know, the decision has been made to sell some of those units. There's certainly no shortage of people looking for real estate in this city still, although it's cooled down. And we use those resources and reinvest them back into new units in higher densities, whether they be townhomes or apartments. And we end up getting more for our dollar under that kind of a business scenario. And so it's and it's not easy. Um, you know, it means so- and sometimes we're displacing people. Sometimes we're moving people around as is the case with Jamesville and there'll be others. I know Councilor Marula's worked hard on the question situation where we're, we'll are be moving people as part of that um, redevelopment. And so there's a lot of logistic issues to deal with. And of course, at the end of the day, these are people who are living in these homes. And uh, so many of them have children who are going to school in these communities. And so lots to think about in terms of the social impact that some of these developments have on people. Not lost on our board and certainly not lost on our council, but um, just makes it a, a much more complex situation than just a dollars
0: and cents scenario. But as you try to accommodate those those people those, th- th- mm-hmm. that are on those wait lists, and, and some of them are in pretty dire circumstances, I understand mm-hmm. that, and and I know that, that staff are doing what they can. The interesting phenomenon that's developed over the last little while because of the shortage, though, Chad, and it's uh, over-housed or under-housed uh, tenants. Explain that to our listeners. Well, you
2: you'll find situations, Bill, where maybe a single parent moves into a townhome unit with uh, two or three children, and uh, over the years, those children obviously uh, they grow up, they go to school. Some of them may go off to college or university. Some of them then reach the age of eighteen, nineteen, or twenty, and uh, they go off and into the workplace, and and they move out of their parents' home, and uh, and so we find ourselves with situations where we have um, you know essentially single, in many cases, seniors now. Um, who, who's, who, who where their children have, have left the house, and they're now in a three- or four-bedroom unit. And, uh, you know, we were faced with that diff- difficult circumstance of having someone who's then deemed overhoused. You know, they only require now one bedroom, um, and, and they don't require the three or four or, or that they may, they may have in their unit. And we're in a situation where we have families on the wait list who are waiting to get into a unit like that. So you can imagine in that situation where um, this parent, is part of a social network in her in her neighborhood she may uh, go to a local religious institution like a church that's around the corner uh, they may volunteer in the area uh, they may uh, have a, a local park that they regularly visit with their with their dog and so now we're in a situation where this person gets a letter in the mail and says you know you're overhoused. you're you know you have extra bedrooms that we could use for a family that's waiting on the wait list much like they would have been in that position 20 years maybe prior and that uh, you know that whole situation in terms of trying to find somebody then suitable accommodation without completely um, you know changing everything that's going
0: on in their life. Well, that's is, that's uh, the rub, isn't it? There's there's yeah. no guarantee that you can find another unit. It's one thing to say you don't need three bedrooms; you have to downsize, but you got to find a unit for them.
2: Yeah, and 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 you know, there's. Transfers happen on that list. I think Kevia was, um, you know, had provided some statistics that not everyone on the wait list is without housing. So there is a there is a portion of, of our sure. um, our residents who are on the list but are currently housed but need a different form of housing. And that overhousing scenario, you know, that I just referenced, it would be one example. Um, and so their their accommodations are made. Uh, they certainly don't go. To, I don't think to the bottom of the line. But there is a wait, and, um, and then there is a decision to make for that person and, and, and for housing, for the provider. It's not just city housing, but all providers, in terms of how you navigate and assist that individual with some very difficult decisions that you know, may have implications on their personal life that many of us would find difficult to accept or, or even deal with. If you know, you're told tomorrow, Bill, that you're, you're to be out of your house in a couple of months, find new accommodations, and, and you like where you live, and you like your neighbors, and you have friends in the area. That's a difficult thing to come to grips with when it's not your own decision.
0: Have you had any dialogue at all with? Well, let's start. We're going to talk about both levels of government. Well, we'll start with the province right, right off the bat, mm-hmm. uh, with it because it's a relatively new government. They haven't mm-hmm. even they haven't given us a budget yet or a throne speech, so we don't know exactly where they're going to spend their money or what the priorities are
2: mm-hmm. at this
0: stage. But uh, which gives you opportunity. Uh, but you know that, that's 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 the hypothetical. You have to understand exactly whether these guys are going to commit to this. They didn't talk a whole lot about things like uh, housing and 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 public housing and affordable housing during the campaign. There seemed to be other issues that seemed to dominate the conversation. Yeah. Uh, can can you can you make enough noise to get them to pay attention to this? Cause, and, and it, it was, I'll put this in the context: we're not the only city that's in this position.
2: No, exactly. And I, uh, you know, they were pretty thin on the policy side of things. That, you know, circumstances were such that. Uh, you know, with the change in leadership midway through the campaign and and all the drama associated with other issues, as you just mentioned, housing certainly wasn't under the spotlight, much like it was under the federal election last time around. So I think it's an open question right now in terms of where the provincial government sits as it relates to housing and the investments they'll make. Early days show, and we just referenced it in terms of the cap and trade cuts and the implications on city housing and, and housing providers in general. So I, and I didn't hear any announcement, you know, the day after to say, hey, don't worry, about these cuts something will follow it's just silence right now and so again still the honeymoon period i think for this government Uh, what we've seen in the early days are cuts and um, not just in in our sector but in other areas as well so i don't know you know they they certainly ran on a policy of uh, fiscal restraint and responsibility that that's a very broad term and broad uh, characterization of you know the way they'll govern but it certainly there's no details there related to housing i think maybe one of our saving graces may be that Sometimes, when the federal government releases um, resources to provinces and to municipalities, they require, as part of the criteria, a, um, a, a partnership between all three levels of government. And sometimes they require a certain percentage of an investment from both the province and municipalities. So maybe the federal government has an opportunity to um, to kind of force and uh, coax and cajole through their policies and, and the, the checks that flow. They can they can um, nudge the province along to contribute. Um, in whole or in part, but there's no guarantees under that scenario. We've seen, certainly, I think Mr. Ford is marching to his own drum, and um, I'm not certain that, um, you know, for as much as Prime Minister Trudeau may want the provinces to contribute, Ontario may be a reluctant partner in that. So we'll have to see. No one has a crystal ball, and I I don't think anyone can foresee what's coming. I do believe the federal government will have something on the horizon just before their their election, uh, which is not too far away. I do believe there will be something there for municipalities. We just don't know, you know, under what terms and conditions is that? You know, is it uh, back-ended again five years from now? And we're, you know, we know what's coming, but it's not here for a number of years. And the question then would be, well, what do we do in the interim?
0: Well, and I don't want to get too deeply into the to the realities of the fiscal problems here, but I mean, what happens oftentimes, and we've talked about this numerous times, is all the mm-hmm. years you've been involved in this file. Uh, governments will announce a program, and we do hope the federal government comes on side and does something like this. But yep. usually what it is is just a pot of money. And they said, here's mm-hmm. how much we're going to spend on this. And right. we all know that the lion's share of it's going to go to Toronto because Toronto's a big city, or, and Montreal, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you're like you know, little birds trying to, you know in the nest trying to get your little share of this thing. What you're looking for, and I know what you've talked about at, at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, year after year after year, mm-hmm. is sustainable funding. And the government Correct. just doesn't seem to understand that.
2: And we're looking for, you're right, Bill. We're looking for certainty because, you know, oftentimes we have mortgages tied to these properties. We want to make sure that if we lock into some kind of a development, that we're going to have consistent, sustainable support from the federal government over a period not just of a term of office, but for over the course of, in this instance, the course of a, in term of a mortgage. Um, we also want to know that for renovations and repairs, there'll be something consistent so we can, you know, properly plan out based on the building condition assessments that all providers have. We all know what 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 elevators need to be done first. We all know what LED uh, upgrades need to be done at certain properties to save on our energy bills. And so to have, uh, as you know, uh, most municipalities work over a 10-year period in terms of their capital budgets. So to have something, a plan in place that shows us where one or both levels of government are going over the next decade would certainly help everyone. And to know that there's budget certainty and, you know, there won't be... Games played with, with those budget allotments over that period of time would certainly uh, help affordable housing providers move forward with a concrete plan.
0: What about private sector? I, I know mm-hmm. that you've been trying to get some partnerships, and, and you've been somewhat successful in that in the last little while. Yep. Clearly, clearly, they've got to be at the table.
2: They are, absolutely. And I, I think uh, we'll, we'll, only, we'll only start to tackle... The, on the wait list side of the equation, we'll only start to tackle that issue with the further involvement of the private sector. And uh, it means opening up some of our lands to development. And It means, uh, you know, in the case of 191 York, which is just a stone's throw away from the um, First Ontario Centre, you know, it, it's a site that's very large in the downtown. It can accommodate a 25 or 30-storey building without even a zoning application. And so that's very attractive to the private sector. It's right in the heart of downtown. That's very uh, attractive to the private sector. And so what we've done with that property and some others is to say that we have this property, we have housing requirements, what's the private sector willing to do for, for the housing sector in order to have access to this as a prospective development? And it really, it's, it's a bid process. It's you know one developer trying to outdo the other in terms of what they can provide. And the, the, the city is certainly a beneficiary of that. The, uh, the housing provider, in this case City Housing, will be a beneficiary of that. And of course, the ratepayers locally benefit because it, start, it starts to tackle the affordable housing issue with private sector dollars.
0: Well, and just uh, I know we're just about out of time here, but just mm-hmm. to factor into this for people who are listening, and say, well, this doesn't impact me. I've got a nice place. I'm fine. I'm over in the East End or I'm in mm-hmm. Ancaster or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to impact your property taxes because ultimately, if the province and the feds don't come through with the money, as they have not in the last little while, it falls yeah. to, the, to the property tax base.
2: Absolutely. Every public-private partnership in housing will, will in, in a small or large way, depending on the development, will assist the local ratepayers because they are footing the bill for renovations and repairs and or a new development that takes someone off the wait list in an accelerated way that the city could never do on its own. And, you know, and again, in the absence of having the province and the feds at the table, it's nice to have someone looking at our properties locally and 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 taking a chance. I mean, you know, there's you know, there, there's been a stigma for 30, 40, 50 years in terms of affordable housing or social housing. And so to know that the private sector is willing to invest millions in some cases tens of millions of dollars into these projects, um, there's a there's an element of risk in terms of the marketability, but we're we're seeing no shortage of people who are interested in our properties and I think that's a good sign though.
0: Ward 5 councilor Chad Collins. Chad, thanks as always for the update. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Have a good day. You betcha.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Justice for Canadian veterans, especially for wounded veterans, at least we think anyway. I'm not so sure it's the end of uh, the game, but it's certainly probably a very positive step. The federal government has now agreed to pay $100 million to settle a long-running lawsuit with veterans who say they were discriminated against when Ottawa deducted their disability pensions from income replacement benefits that they received from Veterans Affairs Canada. This has been going through the courts. or class-action suits. Uh, They have reached a settlement. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Michael Blaze, president and founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Michael, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the program today.
3: Good morning, Bill. Happy news for a change.
0: It's about time, isn't it? <laughs> it seems
3: that I'm on your show an awful lot. Very seldom are we talking about something positive. So,
0: well, you know, That's something maybe the fact that you've been points. maybe the fact that you've been on here an awful lot is one of the reasons why we talk, are talking about something positive today. Uh, you know, well, the, the old greasy wheel gets the uh, the grease, or in this case, the money. This has been well, a long co- Been a long time, time coming, hasn't it?
3: Yes, and if that's the case, you're the oil can, my brother
1: so <laughs> i think
3: I think we're we're doing well if if that's the case, but it has been a long time coming. you know this uh incident came forward when a uh, certain element of veterans were excluded from the uh from the Fisup settlement a long time ago. I'm sure you can remember the conservatives they were clawing back my pension amongst others. It was an eight hundred million dollar settlement. It was huge. But at the time, they, uh, you know, nickel and dimed these four guys that were on the ELB program. And today, you know, to a certain extent, justice has been served. And I, I say that, you know, in the sense that this was a settlement. You're not going to get the full value of your dollar on return. But you are going to either receive 2500 or up to, you know, $50,000. I've read on one thing for those who were most seriously disabled and had a a greater amount with their clawed back from their pension. So this is pretty exciting. I'm a, i am I can honestly say I'm happy. The only downside I see is once again, you know, the government is making veterans pay for the lawyer's fees. I mean, you know, I mean, we won, you know, they made us go to court over a basic fundamental fairness procedure. Uh, The fairness was decided on uh, behalf of the veterans. And yet, you know, we have to take, or they have to take $17 million out of that settlement to pay off the lawyers, which I I truly believe the government should be paying, not not the veterans.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, look, they're the ones that wronged the veterans. And, and by the way, we're talking about a significant number of people, over 12,000 veterans that were impacted by this. Uh, they've come to the settlement. I, I, I think it's incredulous that they would simply pass the costs of all this on to you.
3: Uh, And it was very disappointing because this happened during the uh, previous SISIP arguments, too, where, you know, that percentage of $800 million was uh, significantly higher. And, you know, as, as a client there at the time and as someone who's seen what I personally paid as my, you know, contribution to the lawyer's fee, I thought that was pretty well obscene. And I'm sure that uh, there are many who are quite happy today. Yes, we're getting some money back. And, yes, we actually won in court, and that's an exciting thing. But, you know, I mean, full restitution's not happening here. And veterans should understand that. Yes, that there will be some uh, we won in court, but it was a settlement. And when it's a settlement, that's the money that's provided, not ex- not exactly what you were owed.
0: Uh, but but you know this is where the government gets you know into the wordsmithing idea here. I mean the headline as we just talked about, Mike, is you know a hundred million dollars uh, in settlement. Well, really it's eighty three million because the seventeen million is going to go to the lawyers and not to you.
3: Absolutely, but you know I I mean uh, you know the glass in this case is uh, way over half full, and I think for veterans, particularly advocates like myself who have been fighting for so long. You know, I mean, it's it's so hard to get them to give an inch, let alone $100 million. And I think that, uh, you know, I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, it was proactive advocacy on your part, on my part, on behalf of those who uh, stood up and actually formed a class action suit, those who were oppressed. And I think collectively, we have, we have had a victory today, but it is tempered by the fact that You know, we have to pay the $17 million lawyer fees on, you know, on disabled veterans. That's coming out of a disabled Canadian's pocket. You know, I think that's not fair. And I also think that, you know, when when the mistake was made, there should be full restitution to disabled people. I mean, I understand this was a lawsuit, but the reality was, you know, disabled veterans, those who had offered so much for your freedom... You know, we're on the other end of the line there. They were being disenfranchised. Our government was not acting in good faith. And uh, while, you know, we we can say they're acting in good faith on the settlement, we also must understand they made out pretty good on the deal as well, compared to what they would have had to fork out had they been 100% liable.
0: My understanding is that there's going to be a, a court hearing in December, I guess to really finalize this and rubber stamp this, is there an opportunity to bring up the lawyers' fees at that time, or is that already done?
3: I think they've agreed on the lawyers' fees. You know, I mean, you, know, I, you know, people always say, oh, well, shoot the lawyers, right? Well, that's not the case here. I mean, if it wasn't for uh, Monsieur Dreppel, for example, a veteran who I know, you know, uh, stepping up and, you know, the other law group taking this, they would get nothing. And that's the bottom line. You know, I mean, if they hadn't, hadn't organized themselves, if we hadn't got collectively motivated as a veterans community, that $100 million would still be in the government's coffers.
1: Yeah.
3: And now it goes to the judge. It's a more or less protocol. The judge has to, you know, go through the make sure they sign the I's and dotted the T's and all that stuff, right? You know, and to confirm it. But I mean, in most cases, it's just protocol now. Uh, the two parties have agreed on the issue, and now it's just uh, hopefully the group, the judge does too, so we can actually see this money rolling. Because you know, here's another thing people forget, but you know, when you take a quarter of your income out of your income every every month, there's a contra- or you know, an adversarial impact on your quality of life. Sure. And right now, it's important, you know, to get this moving forward and to get this money rolling into these families because right now, like I say, you know, you, you deduct a quarter of your income that you should be and you have earned and they're taking away, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible impact. Yeah.
0: Let me ask you about the, 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 the results of this. I mean, for instance, somebody who's g- going to get a check, and as you said, it depends on how long they've served, et cetera, et cetera, uh, but somebody who's, say, going to get a $20,000 check, uh, are they going to have to pay tax on that?
3: Oh, I believe so. So they're but gonna get—they've
0: got your hand in your pocket already.
3: Well, you know, it, it, it's very—but it's your
0: money, sense. Mike.
1: I know,
3: I know, and it, it's the same with, uh, uh, you know, the SISA program. They tax that, you know, and even though it's a disability provision, and it's like supposed to be comparable to workman's compensation in the city le- or the province level, where it's not taxed, they tax us. And that's something we have to work on because it's not fair.
0: Well, that's right. what that's what I was saying off the top. This this is a good victory, but this is not the end of the battles here because the the inequity here is still pl- in the system, and and we've got to do something about that. I mean, the <laughs> whole reason that you get these payments, and you've been very very clear in explaining this to us over the years, Mike, is because you've wounded veterans, and these are people that look at they need top up, they need income, and then the government says, well, okay, but we want our share back again. Well, that's it's it, that's that's a double standard.
3: You know, and uh, hopefully Doug Ford doesn't see that because he'll be uh, doing it to Ontario people on workman's compensation because, uh, you know, I mean, they're nickel and diming us. And the reality is, you know, they they wrap uh, themselves in the veterans flag, but they're still taxing us when a normal Canadian who is disabled, who is covered under a provincial system is not taxed.
0: Well, that's that's a double standard, once again. It just doesn't make any sense.
3: That's right. And there should be equality and recognition of a disability. And when, you know, we have men and women in uniform who have bled for this country, who are to be treated with a lesser standard on income replacement when they come home from the battlefield, you're right, that is a, a egregious double standard.
0: There's been a new minister. Seamus O'Regan's been in there for a little while now. But I mean, we talked when he was appointed to this portfolio. uh, And and, because you weren't overly impressed, I guess, with the previous minister, the previous two or three, actually, who seemed to to hear you but not really listen to you. Uh, Do you get the sense that there's a better relationship now? And and, and is this settlement an, an indication that maybe these guys are moving in the right direction?
3: Well, they may be moving in the right direction, but I'm not seeing any improvement in the relationship between uh, veterans and the new minister, frankly. You know, he's been on this dog-and-pony show going across the nation with Deputy Minister Nitenchik, uh, you know, telling veterans what they're doing, but he's being met on every occasion by veterans who have been disenfranchised by his government's decisions. And, you know, until we get a minister that's willing to listen to us, and make effective changes, nothing changes. And, you know, I've been doing this since 2010. I've been through many ministers. I've heard all the lipstick. And, uh, you know, there's not much change now compared to what has been in the past, except, and to be fair, except on the government level, there is more money rolling towards veterans now but that's only as a consequence of of staunch advocacy on behalf of many of us within the veterans community.
0: Yeah, and and you know, those those trips to Ottawa or those meetings in other communities, I mean, <laughs> that's time consuming, it can be expensive. I mean, you know, this this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's right. a there's a there's a basic problem here and and you know, especially when it comes to this portfolio. Of course, when you're looking at veterans affairs, uh, you want the minister who's in charge of that portfolio to represent you, not represent the government to you. And and they seem to get that backwards all the time.
3: Yeah, and and you know they have an excellent opportunity. They have veterans within the Liberal Party who have been elected, who have the skills to be a minister, such as General Leslie or uh, Colonel McCrimmon, who was the Parliamentary Secretary. I mean, you know, they could have put a veteran in there who was dedicated to her troops or his troops, and, and it would have made a significant difference in the relationship. But but the government keeps picking a minister of the day that seems to be chosen for his television um, personality rather than his ability to, to establish command and control. And we've all seen, you know I mean, we're dealing with prolonged veteran or waiting times, we we're, we're dealing with uh people waiting for education for a year when it's supposed to be sixteen weeks. You know, we have all these issues at play where is reflected directly upon the lack of leadership at the ministerial level, and yes, on behalf of General Natshauk, the deputy minister. You know, they brought him over there to uh, kickstart Veterans Affairs, and frankly, there's been very little change.
0: Well, because there's so many other things. I mean, this is this is one thing, and this is really something the government—it was their mistake. Uh, and they've rectified that. But, I mean, you're getting pennies on the dollar. But at least you're getting pennies, which is, i damn say, better than what you've had over the last number of years. But we still have to talk about some of these other things. And, of course, that's disability support. That's help for uh, people that are dealing with PTSD issues. Uh, and on and on it goes. And, uh, uh, the, you know, they're talking the talk right now. But clearly, I mean, for every day that they don't enact some of these programs or fund them properly, uh, you've got more veterans that are going to find themselves in dire circumstance.
3: Oh, yeah, and it it's particularly egregious for those who have sustained mental trauma because, you know, they're living on the edge. They're uh, financially bereft until all this gets sorted out. You know, they're completely dependent on Veterans Affairs Canada during this transition period, and many of them feel they've been completely left adrift. The support elements that they were promised are not in place the money that they were promised in order to establish that that quality of life, to be able to live as a Canadian without living hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck, you know, it's not being provided. And, you know, we have to keep fighting, and uh, all Canadians have to keep fighting, particularly in the sense of the lifetime pension, where the uh, young fellows lost the uh, lawsuit a couple weeks ago, and, uh, you know, because this is a, a, a political issue, you know, veterans should transcend uh, partisan politics, that, that that we all, whether you're a minister of parliament, whether you're a senator, whether you're a citizen of Canada, should support our troops, make sure that they have everything they need when they come back from harm's way, because we have to acknowledge that we, Canada, sent them into that that, that that conditions of extreme mental and physical trauma, and that we, as Canada, have an obligation to them.
0: What about some of the programs that the government likes to talk about and brag about, uh, things like the uh, the Service Income Security Insurance Plan, things of that nature, are they funded properly?
3: Well, you know, I believe that they should be non-tax, first of all. Right? Yeah. You know, we have citizenship go on our ELB, right, to, to have parity to a civilian level, And I think that it should be 100%. You know, I mean, they pay us low in the military as it is. And to come out and say, well, you know, we'll give you 75% on CISF, that that, that puts you into a very stark financial zone, you know. And and that's the reason they came in for this anti-poverty threshold, because there were so many veterans living beneath that poverty threshold despite the fact that they were seriously disabled, you know, where there should have been more care, not less care available. And, uh, you know, funding for mental health, they 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 talk a good talk, but, you know, my friends are still dying, though. And we still have suicides rampant within our community. And we still don't have a facility to send these young men and women to when they're in crisis because the government's refusing to sponsor one. You know, they have this attitude where I'll download all these veterans' issues to the provincial system and we'll let them take care of it. And conversely, the provincial system, as we all know, is, you know, over as it is. And the professional cadre within that system is not necessarily trained to to cope with military or veterans' trauma. Right?
0: Exactly. And, you know, That expertise has to be there. Well, Mike, a a victory of sorts today, but it's still a long way to go. I appreciate you joining us today for this, and uh, we'll stay in touch. It's not over yet. All right, Bill. Thanks for calling. You betcha. Mike Blaze, of course, uh, the president and founder of Canadian Veterans Advocacy.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from
0: 9 to noon on
1: 900 CHML.